listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. Our first reading comes from Genesis 12, 1-4a. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Our second reading comes from John chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be, Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man." Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Y'all can take a seat. Well, good morning. morning. I'm so pleased to see you. Welcome. I don't know if you are coming in today and you are well, or maybe you feel like you're dragging a bit. I don't know if you are among friends, or maybe you've walked in and you're a little uncertain because you don't know anybody here, nobody knows you, they don't know your story. I don't know if you're here today and you feel like this is a season where you're really close to God, or it feels like, hey, is anybody going to answer my call? Go through seasons like that. I don't know if you're here and you believe the things that we believe, or maybe you vehemently and completely disagree with us. I don't think that anybody is here by mistake, and so I believe it's the Holy Spirit who's been at work drawing us in toward each other and especially toward the Lord Jesus. And so I want to say to each and every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, you're welcome and you're wanted, and I'm really grateful that we get to be together today. So we've got these two great scriptures, Genesis 12 and John chapter 3. You may have heard of the last couple of verses of John chapter 3. And in both of these stories, we have someone who's having an encounter with God, 
and they're being tasked with the impossible and then asked, will you trust me with this? Will you trust me with this? In Abraham's case, he's meant to trust God that through him and his 75-year-old wife, they're still going to have a biological child. There's some 75-year-olds in the room. I don't know if you're believing for a child. We can believe with you. It's been done before, I guess. In Nicodemus's case, he's being asked to trust that a grown man can be born a second time. Now, it strikes me, I was trying to think of what binds these texts together, that both of them deal with the vulnerability of multiplication. And it's far from the only time in Scripture where, where someone has to work with God in their desire to create more life. Most notably, of course, is Mary, who is being told, you're going to get pregnant, but without being intimate with a man. It's like, and Mary chooses to believe. There are a lot of people in our church and in our community who have this deep, deep desire to multiply uh, and who struggle with infertility or for one reason or another, those desires are thwarted. And if that's you, may God give you the desires of your heart. Uh, many of us know the journey of having that nascent desire, that core, carnal, like biological desire and it not coming to fruition in the way that you want. May God be gentle with you and answer your prayers. But it's not just multiplying babies. There are lots of things in life that we steward, that we oversee, that we long to see multiplied. You may want to multiply your ministry or your business or your, you know, coming together at the end of the month and you're like, I would really love to multiply my income. Some of us, you know, may want to multiply our feeling of significance, like there has to be more to life than what I'm experiencing. We long to multiply. There are lots of kinds of multiplication that require trust. And alongside all of those core desires that were imprinted on the human heart when God said to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, God still asks us, will you trust me? Will you trust me? The problem is, for so many of us, trust is, is so difficult. I almost used another word. Trust is very, very difficult. Since the first humans opted for mistrust over trust, we find this proclivity in our hearts toward, toward not trusting. It started when the first humans were swayed by the serpent's words, did God actually say dot, 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 and as a result, we've inherited the difficulty of trusting other people. We find it difficult to trust God. We even find it difficult to trust ourselves. Why? Because we know ourselves really well. If you knew me as well as I knew me, you might not trust me so much. Augustine of Hippo famously chronicled the, the role that sin plays in our lives over the course of salvation history. And he says, in the beginning, humanity was able to sin. God so respected humans' ability for, for self-determination that we had the capacity to sin, but not the obligation that we now have said, as a result of the fall, we're going to do a lot of double negatives here, so track with me. As a result of the fall, human rebellion, we are not able not to sin. The human heart is an idle factory. We find ourselves drawn toward our own self-destruction, working against our own interests. As a result of the redemption that's made possible through the death and the resurrection of Jesus and the gift of the Spirit, we are now able not to sin. And in the age to come, when Jesus restores us, to our full image-bearing identity in the day when he returns, we will not be able to sin. We can adapt this sin language and think about it through the lens of trust. 
In the beginning, we were able to mistrust, and the humans were deceived into buying the lies of the enemy. They were able to mistrust. Here comes a lot of double negatives, triple negatives. As a result of their rebellion, we are not able not to mistrust. Some of you will be working that out for the rest of the afternoon. That's fine. <laughs> we'll keep moving. Through Jesus, our capacity for trust is restored, and in the age to come, we will not be able not to trust him. He will rid this world of ours, these hearts of ours of sin, and we will find it the most natural thing in the world, just like breathing, to trust him. Uh, Abraham, who's regularly used in the New Testament as an example of a model of faith and trust, modeled for us, he was also the kind of guy who regularly had his own backup plans. Abraham was constantly hedging his bets, which is actually good news for us. Because if Abraham can be lifted up as, as a kind of model for belief while also having unbelief and disbelief in his back pocket, then maybe people like you and I who believe but we need God to help us with our unbelief can be counted among people like Abraham too. Maybe we can be heroes of the faith too. But Abraham was always hedging his bets, trusting God to some degree, and also keeping those backup plans nearby. In our text in Genesis chapter 12, God says to Abram, leave your family, leave your people, go to the land that I'm going to give you, and through your family line, your biological family line, I'm going to bless all of the nations of the world. And Abram obeys mostly. Genesis 12, 4, Abram went as the Lord had told him, and then Max Steiner pointed this out to me, uh, the significance of, and Lot went with him. Did God say, leave your family except for Lot? No, he says, leave, and Lot came too. Why would Abram bring his nephew? Well, maybe he's thinking, hey, God, have you noticed how old Sarai and I are? Like, you, surely you did not mean our actual biological children, so I'm going to bring along Lot, and maybe through him, he's going to carry on the family business. Well, in succeeding chapters, things with Lot get a little bit hairy, so we see Abraham make another backup plan, Genesis 15. Abram says to the Lord, you've given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. We can infer from the text that this servant named Eliezer, Abram adopts so that he can legally carry on the family through him. In the very next chapter, after God reiterates to Abram, hey, no, I'm not talking about like a, a, an adopted son. I'm saying I'm going to give you and Sarai a biological child who's going to carry on the family name. God reiterates this in a profound way. Abram and Sarai still execute another backup strategy. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. So you, go sleep with my slave. And who's going to build a family? I'm going to build a family through her. And with that third strike, this habit of mistrust seems to make a permanent home in the family story. We go down a couple of generations and Jacob and his mom can't trust that there's enough blessing to go around for all of the children, so they deceive Isaac and they rob Esau. Rachel can't trust her new husband's God, so she steals an idol from her family and hides it with her as she comes back to the family of Israel. The people of Israel, even though God had led them out of slavery in Egypt with a strong hand and an outstretched arm, 
couldn't trust that the God who was now appearing to Moses at the top of the mountain was surely going to lead them through into the promised land. And so they forged for themselves a golden calf and say, this is the God that led us out of slavery in Egypt. The kings of Israel and Judah can't trust that an exclusive relationship with one God will suffice to meet their needs. And many of them, generation after generation, fail to remove the high places, those, those places where idols of the other nations were worshipped. Sarah hears this promise of God that through you I'm going to bear children, and she laughs, a kind of bitter laugh. Nicodemus hears these words of Jesus saying, if you want to see the kingdom of God, you've got to be born again. And Nicodemus in his own way scoffs, saying, how is this possible? How can someone be born when they are old? You see, it's really difficult for us to trust because we can only see on one plane of reality. The consequence of our separation from our Creator when the first human sin, this tendency that we've inherited, means that we can only see from one plane of reality. In seeing one plane of reality, we assume there is only one plane of reality, and it's that which we can control. As a result, we, we lose heart. We don't have the capacity to help ourselves. We prayed that just a minute ago. You know that we have no power in ourselves to help ourselves. In a minute, we'll pray a prayer of confession that says, apart from your grace, there is no health in us. Which explains why when Jesus comes into this conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus rightly perceives that Nicodemus is seeing this world only through the one plane of reality of that which he can control. And Jesus cuts to the quick with him. Rabbi, Nicodemus says to him, we know that you're a teacher who's come from God because he's a religious leader. It's significant that he's come to talk to Jesus, but he's also a little timid about it. He comes to him at night. He says, we get the sense you come from God for no one could perform the signs you're doing if God were not with them. He's like, look, on the plane of reality that we can perceive, we know that something big is up with you. And Jesus responds not strictly to the words that Nicodemus says, but to the reality from which he's reflecting. And he says, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Jesus says to Nicodemus, You are unable to perceive what's truly going on with me in the kingdom of God that is at hand through my own ministry and ultimately through his death and resurrection unless you are born again. Now, it's really important to appreciate that in John 3, Jesus deliberately employs language that's not easily translated into English. He employs language that is ambiguous, uh, that are linguistically a little bit confusing. They carry double meanings that you don't immediately see when you read them in English. And the ambiguity is critical to catch because Jesus is inviting Nicodemus not only to see reality through the one plane with which he's familiar, but another plane of reality altogether. He's trying to offer him dual-planed wisdom. And the first of these words that's ambiguous that we need a little help unpacking is the word again when he says you must be born again. This is Greek anothen which on the one hand means you must be born anew, you must be born a second time, but simultaneously means you must be born from above. So in the one, one way of reading it, it has to do with timing, being born a second time. The other one has to do with origin. Nicodemus hears this word, this call to be born anothen, to be born anew, and he hears it through the lens of reality that he has on his own, and he, he wonders, even that, how is that possible? 
But Jesus is inviting him into a kind of rebirth that you can't do from just a juice cleanse to clear your head. He's inviting him into another way of seeing the world that is only able to happen with a kind of spiritual rebirth whose origin is divine and not human. He encourages him, he beckons him to be born a second time, deriving his source of life from above. Nicodemus still doesn't understand. And it is perplexing about Jesus that at times he does not bend over backwards to be understood. It's really frustrating. Have you ever read the the Gospels at times and you think, Jesus, you are not even coming close to answering that question. You are not even coming close to preaching a sermon that anyone could immediately understand. The thing about Jesus, Jesus is the most brilliant teacher who has ever lived. And Jesus understands that the student who wants to learn is going to ask questions. And the student who wants to learn is going to meditate on those words and chew them around like a cow chews on cud. Jesus knows that the person who's curious is going to investigate. So he employs another one of these dual images that is not immediately clear to Nicodemus. He says, well, let me come at it another way. No, the one who can see my kingdom and participate in my kingdom needs to be born both of water and the Spirit. Well, water would make Nicodemus think of, well, like a woman's water breaks. That's one way of being born of water. The church would later hear that as a prefiguration of baptism. You must be baptized by water and the Spirit. If Nicodemus had gone back to his Sunday school training, he would have known that, that being born again by the Spirit was something that God had intended all along through the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 36. God says, I'll give you a new heart and I'll put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. This is being born anothen, a heart transplant. And I'll put my spirit in you and move you, compel you from within to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Jesus says you must be born again from above if you want to perceive and participate what's going on in the kingdom that's breaking into the world through my ministry. You have to have a spiritual reset, one you cannot do for yourself. And seeing that Nicodemus is continuing to not track with the conversation like many of us do not track with it and reading it, Jesus says to him, look, I've spoken to you of earthly things and you don't believe them. Jesus seems to think that the words he's saying are at a plane that he can understand. He says, look, if I try to make it even more complicated than this, how will I speak to you about heavenly things? And then cryptically, Jesus alludes to this story from the book of Numbers where the people of Israel had been bitten by poisonous serpents, and they're going to die. Moses goes to God to to complain on behalf of the people, and God very peculiarly gives him an instruction to forge a serpent made out of bronze, and he's to go to the people and lift up the bronze serpent. And when the people who've been bitten by serpents, by snakes, look at the bronze serpent, somehow miraculously they are going to survive. Jesus references this story, and then he employs some more language with a double meaning. Hinting to Nicodemus, if you want to see the kingdom of God that's breaking in through my ministry, if you want to truly rightly understand what I'm doing in the world... And Jesus references the story in Numbers. He says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, a word we have to unpack. 
that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Greek word here used is gineo, which means to physically lift up. In a minute, I'll lift up the bread. I'll lift up the wine. But it also means figuratively, metaphorically, to exalt, which has to do with worship. It has to do with divine intention. Jesus tells Nicodemus that when the Son of Man, a term that he likes to use for himself, I think it's his way of being humble or indirect. I'm not sure. When the Son of Man is lifted up, all who look to him, just like those who previously looked to the snake and believe in him, will have eternal life. When he says eternal life, he is simply not talking about floating on a cloud, wearing a white robe, holding a harp like in a Gary Larson cartoon. The people under 45 don't understand what that means. <laughs> He's not talking about the question, hey, if you died today, would you go up or would you go down? The eternal life in the scriptures means so much more than this. Jesus is saying that those who believe and trust, who look to me when I am lifted up, will begin to enter the fullness of life in my kingdom now. You can picture overlapping circles. People will begin to live into the future that is coming into the present. You'll be able to see and live in the kingdom of God that's on hand, not relying only on the one plane of reality through which we've interpreted everything, but seeing the world now through divine perspective, trusting and perceiving and building their life on the wisdom that comes from above. And this is where we begin to deal with the mystery of the cross. Because, of course, when Jesus says, says that he'll be lifted up, he's talking about when he'll be physically elevated and put on the cross. But this is also, this moment of defeat is also understood to be the moment of Jesus' exaltation. From the humanist view, the, the cross is the execution of a would-be Messiah at the hands of the state. And from divine perspective, the cross was this, this defeat, this apparent defeat was the glorification of the Son who gave himself for the world that God loves. That somehow when Jesus was on the cross, the, the, divi- the meaning that God encoded into this moment was the love of the world and it was the exaltation of the Son. It looks like defeat to the Greeks. It looks like folly to the Jews. Jesus says this is the moment of divine exaltation when he's lifted up. And somehow, I've been trying to get my head around this since I was a child and first heard the gospel. Somehow, in the wisdom of God, trusting in what Jesus, the only Son of God, has done for us on the cross is effectual in liberating us from slavery to relying only on those things that we can see and only on those things that we can control and enabling us to perceive and to participate in the kingdom of God that's now at hand among us through the person of Jesus Christ. It's so big a change that's rendered in a person's life that you might even describe it as being born again or being born from above. It's a liberty and an empowerment that comes on the other side of trust and refusing any further to hedge our bets on backup plans. Abraham, who was the expert both of belief and of having a backup plan in his back pocket, had to, had to come to terms with his proclivity not to believe. When God ultimately gives Abraham and Sarah a child, Isaac, God says to him, Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son, the son you love, Isaac, 
and lead him up the mountain, and there I want you to sacrifice him for me. Isaac, feeling a little nervous, carrying the wood up the mountain, says, Dad, we got the wood, we got the fire, but where's the sacrifice? And he says, surely God is going to provide. What is the walk up the mountain like for Abraham? It has taken them so long to get to this moment where they can see how God's promises will be fulfilled. They have a biological heir. And now God is saying, take this thing, your son, whom you love, your only son, and sacrifice him to me. God is confronting Isaac's, uh, is Abraham's tendency to have backup plans, and he finally chooses to trust. He raises his arm. I can't imagine the counseling that had to follow for Isaac afterward. God says, don't harm the boy, and they're caught in the thickets as a ram, and God says, take the ram as a sacrifice. And Because you have not withheld your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, from me, I'll give all of this to you. In the fullness of time, God would send his son, his only son, whom he loves, Jesus, to be a sacrifice for us. The breakthrough for us comes when we say, I have tried life on my own and it is not going great. So Jesus, whatever you intended and whatever, whatever you understood happening in your cross and then through your resurrection, I am opting in for because I believe that it was somehow for me. And everything you meant by it and every ounce of divine life that I'm meant to derive from you and whatever that costs of me, I am in for that. I will trust in you. Some of us did this when we were children. Some of us did this as college students or as adults. You're even trying to run away from it and you find that you just can't. For as jacked up as the American church is, you still find yourself compelled from within by this voice that keeps calling you home. And you're like, what do I do with this? And the Father is still calling you home to put trust in His Son. We never, ever graduate from the need to respond to the gospel. Repentance and faith are not just something that happened for you at Baptist church camp when you were nine. It's meant to be the rhythm of the life for the believer constantly, if you think about it in financial terms, divesting from confidence in ourselves. That's repentance and investing all of our hope and our trust in Jesus. It's something that we don't ever graduate from. Some of us have been just barraged by life and there have been things that have happened to you that make it so very difficult to believe. Some of you were just shocked and gutted when you were served papers. Or some of you know what it's like to deal with the death of someone that was totally unforeseen. Some of, you, some of us have just been so busy by life, it becomes difficult to see through just the malaise of everything that's going on that, that God feels distant or you find it much easier to trust in yourself than to put your trust in God. Some of us, even more dangerously, the thing that's disrupting our life with God is, is like having all of your dreams realized. It was actually success that's killing you. When Jesus said in the parable of the sower, the deceitfulness of wealth and desire for other things choke out your response to the word, it could actually be getting everything you wanted in life that's killing your ability to trust in the Lord. Maybe you've realized the hard way that Willy Wonka was a liar. You know the end of the original Willy Wonka? Did you hear the story of the man who got everything he ever wanted? He lived happily ever after. And it's just not true. 
And maybe it's crisis, maybe it's, you know, wild success. And today you hear the voice of your Creator beckoning you to trust in Him again. Today and tomorrow, if you hear the voice of the Lord calling you home, the response for us is not to harden our hearts as we've done in the past, but to put our trust in God. And the good news is that if you wonder why you keep coming back, the Jesus ministry did not end at his ascension, but even now at the right hand of the Father, he is praying for you, and he's praying for the people that you hate, calling all of us to put our trust in him, to lay down our weapons, to empty our pockets of our backup plans, and to throw ourselves completely at his feet asking for mercy. The contrition and the clarity that comes from crisis or sometimes having all of your wildest dreams met and realizing it didn't satisfy is a great gift. And Jesus tells the story of standing there in the temple when the one Pharisee proud of himself is saying, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like this miserable schmuck of a tax collector and you've made me special. Jesus says, I don't think God's going to take his call today. The tax collector on the other side of the altar, beating his breast, ashamed of who he is, says, Son of David, have mercy on me. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. If you're given that kind of contrition and clarity, know that it is the delight of God who loves you to see you running home to him. And as Jesus told us in the story of the prodigal son, the father, while while the son was still a long way off, runs to him and embraces him. And to all who would trust in Jesus, who'd come home, to him, he'd be delighted to welcome you as a son and a daughter. God, give us grace today not to rely on what we can see alone, but to fix our eyes on what's unseen. Let's pray together. Jesus, I think about the complexity in the mysteries of prayer. Well, your word tells us stuff like ask for anything you want and it will be given you. And yet we've asked and we've asked and we've asked and we've not been given. Sometimes a sermon like this can be heard like just rub some prayer on it. It'll make everything better. And sometimes it doesn't make everything better. And so we deal with the complexities of life in the present age. Jesus, I pray that you would give us the grace not merely to trust you for the outcome that we most desire, but that you would give us the grace to simply and completely trust you. That in the fullness of time, whether it is in this age or in the age to come, you will make all things new. In the stuff that is not right, you grieve with us in the present age and you will make right in the age to come. Jesus, I pray for the person today who's going through some kind of crisis. Maybe it's a physical crisis, a relational, an emotional, a financial crisis that is propelling them to call out to you. I pray, Lord Jesus, that in your mercy you will hear their prayers, that for them in particular, you'd meet them at the communion table today and fill them. Help them to trust in you. Help them to persevere that perseverance finish its course, that they may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Lord Jesus, we acknowledge that there are so many ways in which we've failed to trust you, ways in which we've tried to kick down doors and stronghand our way into the outcomes that we want, and we just know it doesn't work very well. So today we ask for your help. Jesus, I pray that you'd be present with us as we receive Holy Communion, as you were present with your disciples that last supper. 
Pour out your spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts of bread and wine. Make them be for us the body and the blood of Christ that we may be for the world the body of Christ redeemed by his blood and do the things that we cannot do. Put faith into the heart of the one who doubts. Heal the sick. Reconcile broken relationships. Help us to trust in you. Lord, we love you and we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship and community in person. You can find service times and more information at our website. But wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace.